If you have a copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to look at the book of James with me. We're going to look at James this morning. I'm going to read the first 15 verses of chapter 1. And in uh, doing this, I want to tell you a couple things on the front end. Number one is that the author of this book is named James, who is the brother of Jesus Christ. So when you think about these words that James says that I'm going to read to you, just think about the amazing truth that this is the brother of Christ who walked with Christ, knew Christ, uh, knew him very well. Another thing about James is that he was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem in the first century. And he pastored the church there in Jerusalem for about 20 years. And in that time frame of his pastoring, there was a tremendous famine in the land in which um, that was kind of hard to deal with. On top of that, there was persecution that was going on. There were those in the Roman Empire who were upset with followers of Christ. And there was even some controversy within the church itself. So James pastored for 20 years. He was thought of as a, um, a very prominent person that people respected. They thought that he was a man that had tremendous wisdom, which ironically is a lot about what his book is about um, and under, helping us understand wisdom. And he was someone that ministered during a really difficult time. So we're actually getting to read his own words. And all these words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So they actually come from God himself. But in reading this, just want to remind you that um, we're going to spend time going through the book of James next fall. And so this hopefully will whet your appetite just a little bit for this book. And one more thing. This morning may come across as a little bit more lecture-ish than normal. So I just want to tell you that on the front end, there's a lot of stuff that I want to communicate. And so it may come out differently than it has in the past. So I just want to tell you that on the front end. And if that means that it's less clear than normal, uh, please feel free to email me or talk to me afterwards and I'll be happy to try to clear it up. So um, at least the best I can at this point. So this is God's word. It comes to us through James by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conce- has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We have had the tremendous privilege of looking at your word together week after week after week. And we know, Lord, that it is easy for us to forget that your word is a gift to us. It is a remarkable story of what you have done to create. It is a remarkable story of what has happened to us and the world that we live in. It is a remarkable story of what you have done by grace to answer sin, rebellion, and brokenness. And it is a glorious story of how you are restoring and will restore all things. You will make all things new. So Lord, keep us from coming to this book not wanting to see Jesus. Keep us from coming to your book and just looking at it as some abstract, ancient piece of literature when it's actually your very thoughts and your mind and what is true. So Holy Spirit, compel us again and again to see Christ and to receive him and to do so without reservation. We pray these things for your glory. We pray them for our good. Amen. As we've been looking through the Bible this year, you might remember we have this framework of three loves, four-part, four-part story, and five threads. Does that sound familiar to y'all? We've reviewed this almost every week. Sound familiar? All right, so this morning, here's what I want you to understand about how this book fits within our framework of three loves, four-part story, and five threads. This book is about wisdom. Wisdom is the living out of the three loves. Wisdom is living out, loving God, loving people, loving place. Wisdom is living out the four-part story. Wisdom is living out the fact that God created, we rebelled, Jesus has redeemed, and restoration is coming. Wisdom is living that out. Wisdom is what holds together all five threads. And understand that the five threads are all deeply and intimately connected. And so you can't just pick a thread that you want. Wisdom is recognizing that God has always had a people and he's always building his church. No matter the circumstance, no matter what's going on, he's always building his church. Wisdom is recognizing that evil is real and calling it for what it is, but knowing that it never gets the last word. Wisdom is knowing that relationship with God is by grace. Wisdom is knowing that Jesus actually accomplished something. Wisdom is understanding that everything is moving toward Jesus. Wisdom holds all five of those threads together. So this morning we're going to look at the book and we are going to look at the verses. Make sense? Got me? The book, and then these verses, 1 through 15. So let's dive into the book. Let's try to just get a gist of what's going on with this entire book. First thing, the type of book that this is. This is a book of 
wisdom. It's just like the Proverbs. It's like Ecclesiastes. It's like the book of Job. This is a book about wisdom. Secondly, you ever heard somebody say, sorry, not sorry? You ever had somebody say that to you? Do you like saying that sometimes to people? You know, sorry, not, but not sorry. You ever like saying that sometimes? Well, to modify that, this book is difficult, but not difficult. Okay? Here's how this book is difficult. When you read through the book of James, if you've ever read it before, what you will find is that James is just rummaging from one topic to the next, one issue to the next, one concept from another, and you don't exactly know what he's doing. It's actually kind of hard to figure out why is he talking about trials and then here we are talking about rich and poor and then talking about temptation, how that relates to trial. How does this all fit together? There's a place in Asheville called the Tobacco Barn. 77,000 feet of antiques. 77 square feet, 77,000 square feet of antiques. Anybody like to go antique shopping? And it's arranged largely by different vendors, not by household goods over here and this over there. So when you go into this gigantic warehouse, it just seems like there's stuff everywhere. James can feel like that. You can feel like you read through James and you're like, I don't know what's happening here or there. I don't know how he's connecting these things. It can be difficult, but it's also not difficult. And let me tell you why. And if you miss this, you're going to miss the book. Look at the first phrase. James, a servant of God and Jesus Christ. See that? That means this book is actually not really hard to understand if you pay attention to what James is saying. And when he says, James, I am a servant of God. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. What he is saying is that this book and everything James is gonna say assumes a living relationship with Jesus. It assumes a living relationship with Jesus. So if you read the book of James and just think, oh, James is just slapping on something for me to do in my life, so I'll take this principle and implement it into my life, you've missed it. James is assuming a vital, living relationship with Jesus. Without that, this book will not make sense and we will misuse it. So here's the point of James. If you said, Dave, what's the point of this book? How in the world can I conceptualize what James is talking about? Here's the point. James is trying to tell us that because of Jesus, we are becoming the way Jesus lived. That's the point. Becoming the way Jesus lived. So everything that he talks about is illustrating that point, becoming the way Jesus lived. Now, one more thing in this idea of the book. One more thing. So we've talked about the type of book. We've talked about it's difficult, but not difficult, the point. So here's the last one. Here's the last thing to consider in this category. Can we just think for a minute about the world we live in? I mean, if this book is about wisdom, and this book is trying to tell us that we are becoming the way Jesus lived, and if James is assuming a living relationship with Jesus, so if all that's true, and I realize that I have some problems understanding, well, let's just think about the world that we live in for a moment, because James is writing into the same world that we live in. So let's think about the world that we live in. 
You do realize that the world that we operate in every single day basically ignores wisdom? You realize that, right? Like if you're gonna understand this book, you've got to think deeply about how we have a tendency to approach life and how living outside of these four walls, we are tempted to live our lives. And we are all tempted to live our lives ignoring the idea of wisdom. The way that we are encouraged to live our lives is this, that everything in life is a zero-sum game. Sound familiar? Everything is about calculating cost, benefit, and analyzing everything based on that. We are encouraged to live our lives as if we view every decision, everything in our lives, everything in our work, everything with our friendship through the lens of wins and losses. Sound familiar? So at the end of the day, you end up really, really wanting to win a lot of times. And we also can put a lot of value on losing sometimes because that's the way that we naturally want to live and that's the way that our culture encourages us to live. And by the way, we are the culture that we tend to think, I just want to win this or I want to lose or I don't want to lose anything ever. To press that even further, we are prone all the time to look at everything in terms of just being binary. I mean, we don't have to think back too far to really get a handle on that, right? Do you remember what life was like before the election? How everything was just this or that. And if you're this and if you're that, then you cannot be this and you are the enemy of this. Everything, at least I felt that way, everything, every, almost every discussion about anything revolved around something being binary. No room for complexity, no room for nuance, no room for thoughtfulness, just this is right or this is wrong, pressed into every detail. I do believe that there are rights and wrongs. The Bible's very clear about that, very clear about what's sin and what isn't. But I'm saying things that are not that clear, being pressed into us as if to say, if you're over here, you're way off and you're my enemy. That's the way that our world wants us to live. Not thinking about wisdom at all, not valuing it at all. Just wanting to win, never wanting to lose. Let's make this, I'll try to make this even more clear. Wisdom is not a maxim. You know, like a short little saying that we just slap on to situations. That is not wisdom. Let me press that even further. Have any of y'all ever lived through a really difficult season of life? Let's start there. See some heads nodding? Okay, good, 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 good. So we have real living people here. You're not trying to ignore things that are happening. Great, thank you. You have lived through difficult seasons of your life. Have you ever had someone come up to you in a difficult season of life and they just slap on you, well, you know, God works all things for good at the most inappropriate time. You ever had that happen? Oh, by the way, that's quoting the scripture and the scripture's true. We're not talking about whether or not that's true. We're saying all of us have been in situations in which people just slap something onto us as if, here you go, that'll fix it. Haven't you? Maybe you've even been in situations in which it's maybe not use, using that phrase, hey, 
God, you know, he works all things for good. Maybe they've used the phrase something like this. You should rejoice that you're going through this. Again, at the most inappropriate time, maybe when you're still processing and thinking and figuring stuff out, saying those kinds of things at the inappropriate time can be really hurtful, right? When you read the book of James here in the first phrase, in the, uh, when James gets into trials and he says, count it all joy, brothers, when you go through various trials, he is not saying, here you go, followers of Christ, you just take this around and hold this verse with you and you just bam, slap it down on someone. Right when they're going through a trial. That's not what he's doing. It's not what he's doing. Maybe you have had this experience like I have. I have had people say things to me like slapping Bible verses on my life when it wasn't really appropriate to do that. You know, because it kind of forces you to be like, yeah, I know what you're saying, but that's not what I'm talking about this moment. I need you to sympathize and empathize with me. But I've also been on the other end in which I've tried to sympathize with people as, they've, as, as they are living through difficult times. And I've also tried to empathize with people. I know it may be hard for you to believe, but I really have tried to empathize with people at times. And I really do care, I really do. And in trying to enter in when someone's going through a hard time and trying to sympathize and empathize and you're trying to enter into that, that difficult time in that person's life and their response is, well, God's sovereign. Like that statement bereft of emotional engagement. Like that is how people can at times hide behind a doctrinal commitment because they don't want to really engage with what's going on in their lives. Do you experience that too? Just so you know, James is not communicating that wisdom is like a maxim that you just slap on people at all. That's not how we're supposed to look at this book. That's not how we're supposed to read this book. That's not how we're supposed to read these verses. And if we read them that way, we'll miss James. We'll miss the heart of what he is saying. So that's the book. Ready to get into the verses? So let's dive into these verses. All right. These verses, James is trying to communicate two connections, okay? He's going to talk about two connections, this is going to be complicated, but I'm going to try to make it as simple as I can. And I only say it's complicated, not because y'all can't handle it, but because I struggle to communicate it. So I'm telling you on the front end, James is trying to say that he's trying to make two connections for us. So here's the first one. If you look at verses 1 through 15, James is telling us that there is a connection between trials, faith, wisdom, and maturity. He's saying, as you live your life, I want you to understand that trials and faith and wisdom and maturity are all connected together. Don't think of them as siloed concepts. They're all connected. Let me show you what I mean. The first 15 verses are all about trials. Look at the first four verses jumps right into trials. Look in verse 12, what we read, which we're not going to spend time on this morning. He brings trials back up again. He's telling us that this whole section, 1 through 15, is talking about trials. And specifically, when you think about trials in the first four verses, what you realize is trials are everywhere, all the time. And trials 
are where we are forced to live by faith. Trials are where we have the opportunity to put faith in gear. So we say we believe in God. Okay, well, a trial has come. Put that faith in gear. Live out your faith. Verses 5 through 8. James immediately shifts from talking about trials directly and connects it with the idea of wisdom. Look at verse 5 through 8. He says, when you're going through trials, remember, God gives wisdom. God gives wisdom. And oh, by the way, look at the text, verses five, verse, uh, verse 5 in particular. Oh, God loves to give wisdom. He does it generously. He does not withhold it. When it even says that he gives wisdom without reproach, what that means is this. He does not look at your life and say, well, you did this over here, therefore you will not get wisdom here. This is talking about the freeness of God's gift, the freeness of him giving wisdom. He does not calculate when he's determining whether or not he's going to give wisdom. He gives it, and he gives it generously. No matter what you have done, no matter what I have done, he gives wisdom. And you see, the challenge of that is this. We don't always want it. That's what verse 6 through 8 is telling you. Verse 6 through 8 is saying, look, when you're going through trials, ask God for wisdom. If you want to live by faith, then in faith, ask God for wisdom. Don't live your life saying that you follow God and then not putting faith in gear when trials come and immediately think, oh, God doesn't love me. James presses this down even more as if to say, look, God gives wisdom. He does it without calculating. He does it without measure. And you know what? Most of the time we don't ask for it because we struggle to put our faith in gear. And more than that, if you follow those verses in 6 through 8, he ends up saying we end up being double-minded. Did you notice that? Which literally is a made-up word that James created called double-souled. In which he's saying that there are times in our lives in which we live as if our soul is facing one direction, saying, I want to believe in God. And then at the same time, our soul is saying, but I don't want to put my faith in gear here. To live by faith means that we live an open-handed life. Take that in. To live by faith means we live an open-handed life. Faith does not merit anything by God. Faith receives what God has done. And faith inherently says, I need who you are, God. I need to get out of me and into you. Faith says no matter what is going on, God is with me. And the more that we live an open-handed life, the more that we will be willing to recognize all of the places in which we are still living for self. In other words, God, you can have this part of my life. I'm open-handed here, but I'm closed-handed over here. To live by faith means, God, I want all that you want for me. And 
by your grace, I recognize that there's a lot of things over here that I don't want to be open-handed about. I want you to do something very specific over here. So I'm not going to be open-handed about that. And James is saying that is being double-sold. So the point is, the more we live by faith, the more we are open to whatever God has for us. And that means even in trials, God is with us. And even in trials, we can say, God, this is so hard, but my hands are open. And God, it feels like you've pried my fingers open because I don't want to hold my hands open. But you are doing this, and I want to receive whatever you have. I need wisdom. You see, wisdom is not living our lives as if everything is wins and losses. Wisdom is not living our lives as if everything is a zero-sum game. That has nothing to do with wisdom. Wisdom actually lives life and says, hmm, instead of everything being wins and losses, wisdom says everything is a building block. That means your losses God is working greater understanding of self and who he is into you. That means the success that you have, the wins that you have, not so much about you as they are about you understanding yourself and who God is. It means that everything in your life is a building block. It's not a zero-sum game. It's not wins and losses. It's not that everything's binary. It's that you're changing and growing so that the wins, eh, they're not that important to you anymore. So that the losses, you're able to face them honestly and realistically because you're learning everything that God wants you to learn through what is happening. See, when, living your life without wisdom, always, you, you will always just want more data to make better decisions to get better results, whatever results you're talking about. But life with God not so much about that. Matter of fact, the results are done. Sorry to say it that way, but the results are done. Jesus has done something. So, you don't have to worry about wins and losses. I don't have to worry about wins and losses. We can go into everything open-handed knowing this is about me and God and my relationship with God and what he's going to teach me and who I am. How he's going to grow me. So let's summarize this to see this connection, right? Because there's a connection. Remember this first connection? Faith, wisdom, maturity. What's the other one? Forgot something. Trials. There we go. Whew. Focus, Dave, focus. So here's, here's the summary. Everything in your life is a trial. Everything. Living in a fallen world is a trial. Surprise. Hate to say that that way, but it's true. Everything in your life is a trial. Living in a fallen world is a trial. Everything. And living by faith means that we crave in every aspect of life, we crave wisdom because in craving wisdom, we actually are starting to want what God wants for us. 
which is found in these verses where it says, when you ask for wisdom, here's what God's going to do, or excuse me, let this trial have its work in you so that you'll be perfect and complete. That is maturity. What God wants for you is for you to be mature. What God wants for me is for me to grow up and be mature. So if I recognize that everything in my life is a trial because I live in a fallen world, then that means living by faith means no matter what I'm doing, I, want, I crave wisdom because in craving wisdom, I want what God wants for me, which is to mature. So that's the first connection. You get that? Connection number two. Look at verses nine through 11. James says, let the poor boast in his exaltation and let the rich man boast in his humiliation. What? How in the world does James get there? We're talking about trials and wisdom. He's trying to make a connection in our minds. He's trying to get us to connect the dots. Let's start with, with what is obvious about this. Look at the end of verse 10 and verse 11. Let's talk about riches for a moment. And again, we're starting at the ground level. This is the surface. This is easy to understand. James says, don't really pursue riches because you're going to die. You're not going to be around very long. And your riches are going to go away. Obvious. If, if you've ever made a lot of money in your life, you probably have lost a lot of money in your life. <laughs> Most people that I know that have a lot of money have lost a lot of money in their lives. My hunch is, you know what it's like to lose resources like that. Actually, if you have any type of retirement plan and you've been alive, which you have for the last few years, you've seen it go boom. Money comes and goes, riches come and go. And James presses this home to this church in first century Palestine by talking about this wind that comes, literally the east wind. Y'all ever felt this uh, hot wind blowing on your face? You ever felt that before? Here's one of the few times that I can, uh, res uh, here's, here's one, of the, one of the only ways I know to connect with what James is saying here. Look, I don't cook very much, just want you to know that. But one of the things that I love to do is I love to get some French bread frozen pizza and put it in the oven, crank that oven up, add some extra things on this pizza and then wait for it to be done. And then I open up the oven door and you know what happens? You can get where this is going, right? Hot air, you know, just blowing all over me. And it's hot. It's really hot. In Palestine, apparently, most years, there is basically a day where the wind shifts directions and comes from the east. That's why he literally talks about the east wind. You don't have that in your English, but that's what it is in the original. And the wind from the east comes off the desert. And in the springtime, when there are all these flowers that are around, and everything looks kind of beautiful, at least for that area, the east wind comes and melts everything. And James is saying, y'all know what it's like when that wind comes in from the desert, right? And it just like, decimates all the foliage and flowers? Well, let me tell you, having riches, man, it can, be, it can go away in a second. Just like that wind comes in and takes it away, that's what happens in your life. That's what will happen in my life. That's what happens when we pursue riches. It doesn't last. That's obvious. But James is actually going deeper. 
Again, what in the world is he talking about? Let the poor man boast in his exaltation. Let the rich man boast in his humiliation. What is he talking about? And how in the world does this make any sense? James, what James is doing is he is illustrating for you and me every single thing that we've talked about up to this point. Everything. He is illustrating for you that he is assuming a relationship with Jesus. He is illustrating for you and me that wisdom is really important. He is illustrating for you and me that there is a connection between trials and wisdom and maturity and living by faith. He's illustrating everything with this one phrase, everything. He's saying you got to bring the gospel into your life. You got to live by the gospel. In other words, this is the second connection he's making. Wisdom is cultivated when our hearts are transformed by the gospel. Wisdom is cultivated when truth transforms our hearts. Wisdom is cultivated when Jesus transforms our hearts. That's the second connection. He's trying to get us to live out the gospel. He's trying to get us to live by the gospel. That's the only way to make sense. Let the poor man boast in his exaltation and rich man boast in his humiliation. Let me show you. You remember the, you remember, you remember the counterfeit gospel? The counterfeit gospel is this. If anything and anyone other than Jesus captivates your heart, Anything and anyone. If anything or anyone captivates your heart other than Jesus, it is a counterfeit gospel. And I'm saying that all the way down to your toes. I'm saying that if faith captivates your heart, counterfeit gospel. I'm saying that if there is anything other than Jesus that is your purpose and your motive and your mission, it's counterfeit. Anything, being a good dad, being a great worker, being successful in business, having a great reputation, counterfeit. If anything other than Jesus is your motive or your mission or your purpose to do anything, it's counterfeit. Counterfeit, counterfeit, counterfeit. There's no, there's no margin for error here. Jesus is everything. It's not even so much your faith in Jesus as it is Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. Anything other than him, counterfeit. And in particular, the events of what Jesus did in living in this world, being God and being man together, and historically, literally living in this world, a perfect life, the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for people like you and me. And the reality that he literally, historically rose from the dead. What we believe is crazy. You've got to understand that. We believe God took on human form. That is crazy. That's the gospel. We believe that that God-man lived and died and rose from the dead. Those events of his death and resurrection are the gospel. And what that means is this. My resume, what I've done, 
or what I will do, or who I am, or where I come from, whatever makes up my resume, whatever it is, only, only renders me guilty before God. The gospel brings me very low. The gospel makes me realize I'm not enough. I won't be enough, and I never have been. And the gospel at the same time says Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, means you can be forgiven, you can be righteous before God, and literally because of Jesus, you'll be with him forever. A son, a daughter, you will have the same inheritance as Christ himself. It brings you up and it exalts you. And when James says, let the poor man boast in his exaltation, he is saying, those of you that don't have much, your existence is tough, isn't it? Matter of fact, most people look at you with disdain. They see what you do and what you can't do and they think that they're better just because you're poor. And on the extreme of that, there are people who think that you're poor because you made all the decisions to be that way. As if you just made better decisions, you wouldn't be that way. James is saying in this first century to this church, those of you that don't have anything, you know what it's like to live every day under the disdain of everyone, where everyone looks down on you, where no one cares. They just look at you and you just missed it. And he says, you must think about what Christ has done to raise you to heaven. And that even though you don't have much now, you actually have everything because you have Christ and what he has done. And you have the promises that God will supply all that your needs, that you need. And one day you'll be with him forever. Meditate, boast in your exaltation. Boast in what Christ means for your life. And those of you that are rich, you need to boast too in your humiliation. Now I know that most of us who are considered rich or who would be rich, we can usually pass the, the test, right? Like we know how to answer the questions, right? Like what does the gospel mean? Who is this Jesus? And we're like, boom, we can nail that. I can write that answer out. I got it in my head. I can say it in my sleep. You can wake me up in the middle of the night. I answer the test right. But functionally, we don't live as if Christ is our identity. Functionally, we do not live based on what Christ has done. Functionally, when we get in those moments in which people are, you know, talking about life, talking about what's going on, talking about family, talking about being single, talking about hobbies, we always feel compelled to say, oh, well, I went to this school. Because functionally, we feel better about ourselves because we went to this school and we know other people did not. Functionally, we get in those situations, we start talking about the job we have, the title we have, the accomplishments, where we've been, where we've lived, how much we make, perhaps. Functionally, we are deriving our worth from our education, from our resources, from our accomplishments, and we use that in conversations to say, this is why you need to respect me. 
because this is what I've done. This is who I am. We can answer the questions on the test all day long about what the truth is and what the gospel is, but functionally we live as if our worth is bound up with who we are and what we've done. And James is saying, you'll never have any wisdom if the truth isn't changing and transforming and cultivating your heart. James is saying, you have a lot, you're wealthy, you're rich, you need to boast in your humiliation because all you typically hear is probably affirmation. And yeah, if you've made it financially, you probably have had to handle a lot. No doubt there have been trials. No doubt there have been struggles. No doubt there have been failures. But you have overcome. You have made it. You withstood. You figured out how to make it work. And James is saying at a functional level, you have got to think about what it took to save your life. And it took the death of Jesus for you. It took his perfect life for you. And maybe that courage in your education and courage in your financial status and courage in what you've overcome will go down a little bit. And maybe you'll be in those situations and instead of responding in kind like everyone else, you might just internally get uncomfortable and not think that you're better than other people because you're uncomfortable. But just start living out of that fact of, it doesn't matter how much money I got in the bank, Jesus had to die for me. And there's something far more important than my life than what I've done. James is saying to this little church in the first century in Palestine that's endured famine, it's been going through persecution, it's got turmoil inside and outside. He's saying that we as a church ought to want to look a whole lot different than the world around us. And we ought to be a people who love to talk about Jesus. And if we're poor, we love to think about how Jesus has exalted us even now. And if we're rich, by God's grace, we are learning to love to think about how we are humbled by what Christ has done. That doesn't take away our work ethic. That doesn't take away even some of our, uh, some of the things that we may want to do in working hard. It just means they're not that important relative to Christ. And when Jesus takes front and center, and we are learning and growing in our relationship with him, then we as a body of Christ will be people that love wisdom. That we want to grow and be mature like God wants us to be. And that we're not going to look like others or act like others. Not because we're better, but because Christ is most important to us. Would you pray with me? Lord God, help us to look at others the way you do. Continue to teach us to live 
by the power of what Christ has done. That we might love you and love others and love the place where you have put us. Increase our wisdom. Grow us and make us mature together through the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. God is determined to bless you, his people. What Jesus did actually means something for your everyday life. So try and live as if you actually believe what I'm about to say is true. So yes, I'm kind of saying pay attention still because these words are from God and they matter. And it's easy to listen to what other people say. Sometimes those voices are so loud. But let the voice of God be louder in your life. Live by what he says about you. Now the God of peace that raised Jesus from the dead. Because of the blood of Christ, he is eternally bound to you. And through the blood of Christ, he is equipping you with every good thing that you need to do his will. It's even better. He's working in you each day what is pleasing in his sight so that one day all glory will go to him, Father, Son, and Spirit, world without end. Amen. Go in his peace.